cliffcentral.com. Get settled in and get ready. All our attendees to come in. If you are registered for this course, then you're very, very welcome. I'm pleased that you could be a part of this. Um, and obviously, there may be more than uh, than one person per computer, so we're not entirely sure of how many are watching right now. But what we'll be doing through the course of, of this uh, discussion today is talking about some very important, and I think in South Africa and the South African context, some some deeply necessary and meaningful conversations around uh, gender-based violence, which is something which has been going on in South Africa for too long. It continues to uh, to be a problem for us, so much so that the president himself called it our second pandemic. And in the wake of COVID, that certainly has brought into stark contrast just how awful the situation here is as compared with other parts of the world. So what I'd like to talk about today is um, the outbreak of COVID-19 and how that has traumatized so many people in society, how the deepest traumas traumas in this situation only surface um, after they have ended, which for us is not yet there, and what that means for our societies, what it means for women, for vulnerable people in society, and for a country where we already have so much social inequality and so much difficulty in dealing with some of the problems which are at the root of our society. So we'll get into that in a moment. I just want to start off um, by giving everyone a couple of seconds to just register and sort themselves out and uh, get comfortable. Make sure that you uh, you have something to drink nearby, uh, preferably because it's 11 o'clock in the morning, not something alcoholic, unless you're willing to admit you have a problem too. And um, I'll introduce our guests to you in just a second. There are three esteemed panelists here with us today. All of them have taken time out of their their very busy schedules to be with us, and I'm delighted that they could share their expertise and their knowledge with uh, our audience today. So if you are ready to go, so am I. I'll begin with something that I think is is of a global nature and I think probably worth uh, referring to before we get cracking. During a keynote speech which was delivered virtually in a webinar hosted by the Nelson Mandela Foundation on the 18th of July, the uh, inaugural uh, Mandela lecture was was obviously his, and then many years after that, we've had incredible and varied people speak. This time, it was UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who proposed a new worldwide social contract that he called a new global deal. In his speech, he likened COVID-19 to an X-ray. He said it reveals fractures in the fragile skeleton of the societies that we have built, it is exposing fallacies and falsehoods everywhere, the lie that free markets can deliver health care for all, the fiction that unpaid care work is not work, the myth that we are all in the same boat. Because while we are all floating in the same sea, he said, it is clear that some are in super yachts while others are clinging to floating debris. The COVID-19 outbreak, as discussed already, has been the reason that so much of this has come into focus lately. The pandemic has laid bare structures which condemn millions of people to lives that uh, French West Indian psychiatrist and political philosopher Franz Fanon called wretchedness. Uh, the full scope of human and economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic will not be known for some time, and the impact on our lives and our communities will likely be felt for years and even generations to come. So this is a bleak picture. I'm just setting it up for you. I promise you I'm not going to de- de- depress you the whole way through today's conversation. We actually have something quite inspirational at the end of it, which I'm pleased to tell you about. Uh, but we are all tired, and it has become somewhat trite to describe the injustices and devastation that's experienced all over the world. In fact, for some people, it's their bread and butter, their politicians and standard who moan about inequality the whole time and don't do anything. But it is important that we engage with the condition that the world is in if we are to heal or uh, get over this pandemic successfully um, as, as a species. So, I'd like to get straight into it by introducing you to our panel today. The first of our guests is uh, well-known to South Africans far and wide. She has been uh, hard at work throughout her life championing the cause of, of women and, and also animals and, uh, and children. But um, she is the founding member and senior director at Women and Men Against Child Abuse, Miranda Jordan Friedman. It's a great pleasure to see you, Miranda. Thank you for making some time today. Thank you, Gareth. Nice to be back here. Thank you very much. Uh, Miranda made a star appearance on my TV show not so long ago, so it feels like we spoke just the other day. Sophie Hobbs. Thank you. Sophie Hobbs is the Head of Communications and Business Development at NACOSA, which is a network 
of over 1,800 organizations working to turn the tide on HIV and AIDS and uh, tuberculosis in South Africa. So, Sophie, it's a great pleasure to have you with us, and thank you for sparing us some time in what must be a very, very busy schedule, particularly now during this pandemic. Yes, thanks, Gareth, and thanks for having us on. Thank you. And our final guest, we're having some difficulty with her video, but I can assure you she's there. She's actually joining us all the way from Boston in the United States. And thank you for getting up so early to join us. Professor Monica Onyango, who is a professor in the Department of International Health at the University of Boston in the U.S. Thank you so much for your time today. Monica? You've got to unmute your microphone there, Monica. All right, we'll, we'll try and get back to her in a moment or two. I'm not sure what's going on over there. Um, either way, we've got quite a lot to talk about today. So I, I want to kick off with the pandemic. You know, um, Sophie, you, you've obviously worked on HIV and AIDS and you've worked on TB, which are problems that we are constantly having to to. Uh, Push to the front of the agenda. It seems to slip back every now and then. But in South Africa, we've almost come to live with these things. We've we've learned to live with them. Whether that's a good or a bad thing is for you to tell us. But here we are with another one. And I'm wondering if with the combination of government, civil society, the health sector, and everybody else, we're going to handle this any better, whether there's any sense of extra urgency put in, uh, whether the fact that all of society has been plunged into lockdowns and there's been some restriction on all of our rights, whether that's made people a little more aware of of the issues in society, which we tend to sweep under the carpet and which we, we tend to deprioritize, for lack of a better word. How do you see all of that with the great context that you have of having dealt with HIV and AIDS and TB for such a long time? Yeah, Gareth, I think um, it's a really good question. And I think um, we have learned a lot of lessons with HIV. And I think that that has played itself out um, in our response to COVID um, and, um, and the coronavirus. So the the coming together of civil society, government and business is, has really been a, quite a long road that we've walked with HIV and it's taken a while. Um, and I think that we've really very much learned those lessons. Um, the lesson primarily that you can have all the treatment, all the, um, you know, you can have vaccines, you can have treatment. I mean, TB is curable, but without buy-in from communities, without being able to actually reach people and connect them to the services, connect them to the treatment, you're actually dead in the water. So I think we've learned that quite well. And we've actually been working with government to do community tracing. You know, you've got to go in um, with community health workers, with those people that, that work in communities to actually get into the community so that you can connect people to treatment and to and to prevention as well. So I think we've learned that, that lesson quite, it's been a hard lesson, but it's a lesson that we've learned quite well. And I think at the beginning of the pandemic, um, government was really able to mobilize civil society quite quickly because of the things that we put really put in place with HIV. Um, the worry was, of course, that, you know, with, with a population like ours, which is, uh, you know, has the very high burden of HIV and TB, would they be more susceptible to COVID? And it doesn't look like that's the case. So, um, so that's quite good news. The bad yes. news is obviously the adherence problem, right? People are not going to get their medication and the urgency of HIV and TB then drops down, drops off the rate of off people's radar. So that's it's, worth, it's worth saying, I, I suppose there are so many people in the world who are on one side and a number of other people who are on the other where it's all doom and gloom and mm. nothing is to be learned and government just pays lip service and society doesn't care unless it affects them. And then you get the people who say, but actually we've made tremendous progress and HIV mm. and AIDS is a very good illustration of the kind of progress we have made. And human beings, we never defeat a disease like this. We only learn to manage it, right? Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think, I think we must take stock. We must take stock of, of how far we've come. Now, uh, this is something I also want to address to you before we go to Miranda. But do you think that this has had an effect on making much worse or keeping the same, more or less, or making better the problems that so many people experience in terms of gender-based and sexual violence, domestic abuse, um, the, the kind of proximity that people are now in 
and have been because of this lockdown has obviously exacerbated the condition for a number of people. But do you have any indication through the work that you guys do at, do at Nicosa that, that, that things are particularly bad or particularly good or that they've stayed the same? So it's it's a hard question to answer, but but the the HIV epidemic and the GBV epidemic are actually very closely linked. Um, our HIV epidemic is largely young and female. Our G- GBV epidemic is largely young and female, and so that's where um, we would we would think we will going we are going to see the greatest impact. So um, we work in a lot of sexual violence support centres post called post-violence care or the Tutuzela care centers. And we've actually seen a huge drop in the number of people that are reporting into these centers. So, but we know that this doesn't mean that there's less violence happening. It just means that there are less people reporting. So I think that's really what we've noticed um, on the ground is that um, we're, we're, we're worried that people are not accessing the services that they should be accessing um, at this time. And, and that's a big concern. So we, we can't say for sure whether violence has increased or decreased, but what we can say is that the reporting of that has decreased. And we can say that the people accessing HIV services um, has, has decreased, obviously, with lockdown. Now, Miranda... Women and Men Against Child Abuse operate uh, not only as a, a fundraising and an awareness body. You actually run clinics where you help um, families, children, women who've been in situations of, of abuse. Uh, what's your experience been doing during this pandemic? How, how have you and, and the organization at large been able to make sense of what the, the, the big macro movements are in terms of society? Well, you know, one of the one of the big things, um, Gareth, is children who had access to a caring adult um, and were able to get help, and children who didn't have access to a caring adult, and children whose worlds, well, most children's worlds were a lot smaller. So that means that they were at home with a certain number of people, and if those people were caring, loving adults, um, then they were they were safe. Children who were not. Um, were even in more trouble than they ever were before because they had no access. They were not at school, so they had nobody else to talk to. We know that children can only access the criminal justice process or get any help whatsoever through an adult. So the thing is that if they were at home and where abuse was happening or domestic violence was happening, I mean abuse directly to them, or families fighting or alcohol abuse or drug abuse, they were literally locked in. So they were in that situation. They were going to be in that situation for a very long time. Um, slowly now we've seen, seen that return. But children who, um, who reported prior to lockdown and who had caring adults, so this happened by an uncle or another relative, but they were with the caring, they could still continue coming to our clinic. So literally within two weeks, our clinic's um, we're open again. You know, we just had to put all the things in place that we needed to be an essential service. So we've been running constantly. Our rooms are now full. Um, are our rooms full because um, children now were able to see our other relatives who notice things? Probably. Um, some of the cases where police have brought children have been not one child, but three or four children. Um, but I think we need to look at the fact that children really can only access us or any other help um, with with an adult. So that's that's problematic. The adverse um, exp- childhood experiences um, for children have been particularly difficult during this time, and we know that that is trauma. That adult child um, adverse childhood experiences are trauma, um, and trauma is violence. And in that circumstance, you cannot have nurturing. So a lot of children's normal development and positive development. Um, was was arrested during this time um, when there was a conflict in homes. And we know that um, probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of children in our country have various forms um, of adverse childhood um, development. Uh, I think um, probably another thing that we need to look at is the fact that also very young children couldn't have access to to um, Pressures or, or nursery schools where also they would have been stimulated. They've right. had a huge problem right now where we're going to put children back in, have missed 
months and months of have had access to devices where they've had a different type of stimulation, but not not the type that they would have needed for um, a nurturing life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, I mean, it's a very complex situation, and we're not trying to, by any means make it sound as if there's an easy solution here, but but certainly everyone's working towards, I think, the same goal. Now, I'd like to try and bring Monica in here, Monica Adiambo Onyango, who is uh, joins from Boston. Monica, can you hear us? I can hear you very well. I don't know if you can hear me. Yes, we can. I'm very glad to say we can. Thank you. So, Monica, tell me a little bit about the, the, the way you're involved here and, and, and what your interest is in this this problem that we seem to experience in concentration in South Africa, but which is nonetheless a, a problem of, of global proportions, um, gender-based violence, sexual violence, the, the predation upon women of men uh, all over the world, and, and particularly in, in countries where there's such disparities between uh, the rich and the, and, the, and the poor. Thank you very much. My interest is around access and availability of services. I'm just trying to uh, bring up the concept that whenever we um, respond to pandemics like COVID-19 or any kind of epidemic or any kind of disaster, usually most organizations uh, really respond to the crisis at hand. But as we have seen historically, gender sexual and gender-based violence is very, very common among societies whenever there's a crisis, girls and women and especially young girls are at risk. So just bringing the attention that we should not forget this other pandemic, which we now know that happens whenever there's a crisis. What can be done, not just by governments, because it seems that all over the world, everybody just throws their hands up and goes, government, help us. But the problem doesn't originate from government. Governments are not going around into people's houses or domestic arrangements and saying, we'd like to see a little more domestic violence here. It's clear that government, while they may have a role to play in trying to uh, assuage this problem and to curb it wherever they can, they're not the ones who are perpetrating these activities. We had a, a really interesting conversation on the webinar last week about how even the language we use when we call a woman a rape victim, instead of calling, uh, talking about, you know, there were this many women raped, we should talk about there are this many men who raped. Um, mm -hmm. That it, this would be helpful to try and, and stop obfuscating around what the real problem is. But while government don't go out and actually perpetrate these deeds, there are other things that we can do in civil society to to make things a little bit better, to allow women to uh, to be empowered, to speak out, to stand up for themselves, and in many cases to seek the kind of help and care that they need, the stuff that you do. Um, are there experiences that you have that have proven to be most efficacious in terms of, of, of helping women in communities in, in South Africa or in any other part of the world? Yeah, I think uh, being sensitive to women's issues, women equality, education, economic empowerment, but we don't stop there because uh, these things happen at the community level. So when we are thinking of interventions, we really have to make it multi-level and multi-sectorial. You can't just educate a girl and say that when you go back home, you are going to be safe. If home is not safe, then we need to identify interventions at the home level, at the international level, at the community level, we need to have zero tolerance, for example, for these atrocities. So working with communities at hand is also very important, making sure that the policies which have been put in place are actually enacted. So interventions are there, private interventions are there, but we really need to identify where are the determinants strongest. It has to be multi-level. We have to look at the people who are affected. We have to look at the people who are actually committing these atrocities and work with them. So, for example, we can't just be targeting the women and girls. We have to include the men, too. And I have listened to some of your webinars, and you've really addressed the role of men and how they come in. We have to include the men. We have to include the leaders. And most importantly, community-based organizations who are already working around these issues. When a pandemic happens, sexual and gender-based violence does not begin with that pandemic. It is something which is already happening in society. The crisis just makes it worse. 
So strengthening those organizations is very important so that when these other organizations are responding to the pandemic, organizations which are already working around these issues are also made essential during this crisis so that they continue working around the issue. Well, I'd just at this point like to welcome all the people who've just joined us in our webinar. This is the fourth in a series that we're doing with Absom. We've just been listening to to Monica Adiambo Onyango. She is from uh, Boston in the United States. She's a professor there and she's busy giving us her insights. We also have Miranda Jordan Friedman and we have Sophie Hobbs, who are all part of our conversation today. You can also join in and I'd encourage you, if you have any questions or comments, to please put them up on the screen. You'll see on the right-hand side there, there is a chat facility and we'd love to hear from you and perhaps some of our panel will be able to answer some of your questions. I promise that Monica is not in her slippers and her and her gown. It's actually early in the morning in America. We we I'm struggled to <laughs> we struggled to get her camera working, but it's not because she's shy or she's avoiding us that she is um she's not able to be seen today, but she's very much there and very much willing to participate in the conversation, as I hope you will be too. So Let's just go to, to part of, of the really tough conversations that need to start happening. What is it about, and I'd like any theory from, from Sophie, from uh, Miranda, from Monica, and if you're in the audience to give me your thoughts too. What is it about South Africa? What is it about South African men that makes us such a danger to the women of this country? What can we do to identify the problem not just the symptoms, but the actual cause of the problem. And how do we start to materially fix this very broken tapestry that we, we like to refer to when we're feeling good about ourselves as a society, but what's actually a, a, a very, very traumatic and dangerous landscape, which makes it very hard for children, Miranda. I know you work with them a lot of the time, but for the mothers, the sisters, the aunts, the grandmothers, the women in society who have to bear an unbearable burden a very difficult burden, sometimes a burden which is in excess of what we'd expect of two or three families. There's sometimes a grandmother who's looking after 10, 20 children, uh, some of whom are not even her grandchildren. These things seem to me to be very unfair and indicate that there is a big problem um, in terms of the way men in South Africa behave. How would you like to address that? Do you want to start, Sophie? Yeah, um, the, the million rand question. I think we are a post-conflict society, and I think we are a traumatized society. And I think that we underestimate the impact that living under, you know, years and years of of a police state essentially has had on our psych psychology. Um, I think that we are a deeply patriarchal society. I think that um, it's, I mean, people say, oh, blame the patriarchy, but it really is true. I think our, in, by and large, in many of our, of our multicultural cultures, um, boys are brought up to, to not think of women as equal. And I think that um, at, a, at a fundamental level, that's what's what is causing the, the problems, really. Um, and I think that children, uh, because we're a traumatized society and because children are being traumatized. So, you know, the, the research from the Children's Institute is like one in three children reporting, one in three reporting being abused in some way. That is staggering. That is a, a that is a future epidemic waiting to happen. We know for a fact that children who've been traumatized and abused sometimes go on to abuse themselves, but tend to seek out relationships where there's abuse because that's normalized for them. Also have mental health problems, you know, risky behavior. We know that there's an impact on, you know, HIV because risky sexual behavior. You know, this mm -hmm. is the, you know it's, it's not, we know all of this, but, but the problem is how do we fix it? How do we fix it? And I think Really, ultimately, it has to be a whole of society, like, you know, as, as was said before, a whole of society approach. You know, we talk about workplace wellness and HIV and, and all that kind of stuff, but nobody talks about gender-based violence in the workplace. Nobody's looking at how do we identify women in the workplace who are being um, abused at home. And that's just one aspect where we actually have to really look at it as, as a whole um, and look at it from 
you know, the child's point of view right up through um, the life cycle of a person and where are the touch points that we can engage people and, and get them the help that they need. Um, and yes, working with boys, but uh, it's more of a societal thing. And, and ultimately, you know, we have, well, to, we have to look at the whole of society. The, the, most, the most scary thing about this is something you've just touched on now, is that so many young men in this country are raised by single moms or by grandmothers. They're not raised by men at all. And the absence of those men ends up being a lot more detrimental than a toxic masculine example, as the case may be. Because if they have a good yeah. male example, I think that's an instant route to to healing and to health and to a good yeah. relationship with women. But it's interesting that, that we put an extra burden on women. It's not good enough that they are also already the victims of all of this. But then we expect them to raise boys on their own. And, mm. and these boys more than anything, need to be shown what real men do and how real men behave and how they protect and what their role is in society. Um, and, and very often it's just beyond the the, the ability of, of people who are already so overburdened to also have to take care of that and tick those boxes. So, Miranda, do you want to have a crack at that? What's wrong with the men of South Africa? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we touched on this before and I want to touch on it again, but I also want to talk about patriarchy and the sense of ownership. And we have it in. Miranda, if you could just come, if you could just be aware, you're a bit soft, so we couldn't hear you there properly. Okay, there we go. That's that's much better. Yes, thank you. Okay, so when we look at patriarchy and the ownership of of wives and children, and we have that in in many cultures in in South Africa, we have it in the Afrikaans community, we have it in in Zulu communities, particularly where um, you know the child and there are extensions of you, and they must behave, and they must be a good reflection of you. And when things happen in those homes and when you are able to have access and you are a person who is going to abuse those children and, and wives in those homes, those families are not going to talk out. They're not going to break that shell to the rest of society. They're going to keep that, and that keeps going for generations. So when we look at our clinics and we have a child who is uh, being abused for instance, by parents, and that parent, that father, we had, had a couple of cases, that father tells a story about his grandfather sexually abusing him. We're talking about intergenerational abuse in South Africa going on for literally three or four generations easily backwards. And only now we're starting to really talk about it and break that silence and open up about it. But also, um, Gareth, what you talked about, um, the positive uh, male uh, role model and uh, uh, a father figure. So it's not always... As you say, many, many children grow up in this country without their actual biological father, but they could have another father figure. And that attachment is hugely important for males and females to have um, a self sense of self-value, a sense of attachment. And like we've spoken before, when children don't have that attachment to someone who loves them and they positively, so not, and, and the, uh, the person loves them back positively, they will grow up as healthy, balanced individuals who will respect each other when you don't have that attachment and possibly violence or a, a mom who is struggling. Like you say, this huge burden on, on mothers to provide financially, provide emotionally, provide discipline in a home, particularly where you have two or three boys in the family um, and, and cannot always cope with that maybe without very with strictness or discipline that creates, again, another lack of bonding, there you have children uh, or youngsters where we have a huge problem of violent teenagers in this country. Um, the amount of courts that are not coping with the juvenile offenders that get put back into some kind of program. Gareth, that's a whole program on its own. There's not even enough centres that work with juvenile offenders to stop... Um, impulse activity, um, anger management, that are proper programs that will be long-standing and that you can look at this teenager in the next few years and see how he's become, or has he actually become um, a criminal, completely criminalized, and now he's going to be dealt with by, in, you know, in your, in your jail system. So, yeah. So I think the issue of patriarchy, of, of lack of positive male role models, are probably the reason that we have, part of the reason that we have so much um, abuse of, of particularly children.
Monica, would would you like to to come in here and either perhaps you you want to agree with with both the other panelists or perhaps you want to add something? Maybe you even want to disagree. There are other things that, that sometimes we don't all see. There are so many complex moving parts to a society. A lot of it has to do with the criminal justice system, as Miranda's already indicated. But a lot of this is just relationships between people in, in, in healthy families, not always nuclear, but in healthy families, where, as Miranda said at the beginning of this, there is at least one caring adult. So what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I think I agree with both panelists, especially when it comes to intergenerational abuse and patriarchal societies and some of these negative cultures which we hold on. But in addition to that, I would also like us to think about the overall happenings in the society, especially at this time, the economic burden which populations are going through. I think those put a lot of pressure on individuals, and especially males, who sometimes are already traumatized, as uh, my colleagues have already mentioned. But in addition to that, maybe they are not able to uh, provide for their families because of economic pressures, jobs are just not there. Adding on to the COVID pandemic where everything has been closed and people cannot go anywhere. So I feel like when people are going through those kinds of pressure, they turn to the next weakest person and they perform those negative things which we are talking about. So as we discuss all these things about uh, patriarchy, role models, etc., we also need to think about livelihood what is going on in the society, what is accessible to these people. Some of them don't even access the kind of information, positive information, which can allow them to learn uh, new ways of, of doing things. So just looking at society at large, what is available for people, the economic burdens, the other life pressures people are going through, all those added really translate into the violence we are seeing at this time. Um, I, I'd just like to pick up on something which um, Liesl, who's helped us put these webinars together, has, has done some research on. And it's, I think it's so relevant to South Africa and it is quite unique to our society, is the idea of so many young girls who don't go back to school. Some of them get pregnant at school. Uh, we, have, we have an extraordinary rate of, of teen pregnancy in South Africa. It's, it's, I mean, among the worst in the world. I don't know exactly where we rank on that. It's not a list we should be very proud of. But there's also the added complication that so many of these young girls end up finding blessers, you know, these men who uh, will pay for their lifestyle. And, and this perhaps relates to what Monica is saying now about the economic burden, because there are so many of these girls who want to have some of the, uh, the things that will make their life at least materially a little bit better. And they're prepared to use themselves as the commodity. Um, perhaps that's all they know. Perhaps that's all they have. Um, it's not our position to judge, but certainly we need to look at the consequences of this behavior, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, we, we work a lot with, we work with young women and girls, and, and it's a, a global fund funded program that we that we work with. Um, and what, what they call it, um, intergenerational and transactional sex is a very sort of um, jargony expression. Uh, we, I, I personally don't like the term blesses because I think it trivializes what's actually happening there. Um, I think it makes it sound like um, the girls are, uh, are just wanting, you know, nice clothes and things. And actually, I think the reality is a lot starker than that. I think transactional sex is about food, you know, um, at that level. It's about girls who, who actually don't have sanitary products. They don't have food. They don't have um, airtime, which, you know, sounds like something, oh, well, that's a nice to have. It's not. It's actually absolutely vital. Um, as uh, anyone who has young children know that that connection is is absolute. Well, the teenage children will know that that connection is absolutely vital. So I think this is a major risk factor with, with for HIV, and I think it's a major risk factor for gender based violence as well. Because obviously, if you're paying, if you're if you're getting something. Um, you know, it's it's an exchange, right? So so young young girls are having sex with older men in exchange for food and clothes and things like that. Um, they are then acquiring HIV from them, and then they're growing up and having sex with men their own age. 
and then the cycle starts again. So it's a kind of a loop cycle. Um, and and we, we do need to address it, absolutely. And we know that the protective factor is the girl staying in school. This is really uh, absolutely um, has been shown in the research. So we work very, very hard to actually keep girls in school, even if they fall pregnant. They must, we need to keep them in school. We need to keep them safe because that's where they are getting. And this is another thing that's come up with COVID is that's where they're getting, um, you know, as you said, the the connection with the teachers, with the services, with all those things um, and with food, you know, there's food feeding schemes. So, I mean, I think, I think we've got to move away from this whole blesses um, terminology and actually talk about what it actually is, which is a, a livelihoods issue. Yeah, I mean, it is a very awkward conversation because this is, this is quite uniquely a, a South African problem too. Miranda, have you experienced some stories around this kind of uh, yes. transaction sex situation? Yeah, in, in yeah. Clinics? I mean, yes. So we also um, just called it straight transactional um, sex, and it's it's a it's a huge power imbalance, and um, not going back to school, as you've just said gives the child, the young girl, um, and they're as young as 12, 13, 14, and the men could be 35 or 40, very little options because then they don't have an education, they've not finished, and they will continue going from relationship to relationship um, like this. And often when they do fall pregnant, this is when they also fall out of favor with this person who's been happy to have sex with them but doesn't really want to bring up children with them, and we'll find then another young girl, and they are left um, without an education and with a baby to, to bring up. No, it's, it's very difficult. Uh, Monica, do you want to comment on that before I move on to Alexandra's question? Yeah, transactional sex is uh, it's an area which we are doing a lot of work around, and uh, it's very common, especially when people don't have livelihoods. But I also want to add that Girls being in school is very important. Keeping them in school is very important. And especially now, girls who have become pregnant during this pandemic in some places, they're not allowed to go to school. I think we need to find ways of making sure that those who are interested provide them support so that they're able to go back to school. At the same time, as we are talking about keeping girls in school, we need to figure out how we are going to change our communities because the girls still come back home, especially during the holidays, even if there's no pandemic and they still ex- uh, experience uh, sexual and gender-based violence. So as we work towards keeping girls in school, we need to continue also working with communities, changing our attitudes, strengthening the livelihoods at the community level because if they still go home where there's no food, that behavior is still not going to change. So we need to look at this uh, holistically and, and multi-level, as I had said previously. Um, thank you. Thank you all for your insights there. And Cindy saying, wow, it is mind-blowing that transactional sex is happening at such a young age. Yeah, I, I've got to say it's, it's pretty horrifying that, uh, that this kind of thing goes on. Uh, when girls aren't even in their teen years yet. Alexandra asks a really interesting question, and it's probably one for you, Sophie. So she says, hello, everybody. I'm interested to hear more about how sexual and gender-based violence during disasters takes place. Has a similar spike in SGBV uh, been observed in past disease outbreaks? And maybe you can refer here to Ebola, um, as well as the HIV AIDS uh, pandemic in South Africa in the in the early 90s. I'm not an expert on Ebola, so I can't I can't speak for that. I mean, I know that there there is a very clear link between HIV and sexual and gender based violence. Not only um, the fact that it makes you obviously more likely to to get HIV um, if you if you've been raped for obvious reasons. Um, people who experience um, intimate partner violence of sexual violence from their partners um, are like sometimes like fifty percent more more likely to, to become HIV positive. But also for people living with HIV, they tend to face increased um, sexual and gender-based violence as well. So there's a, there's a kind of symbiotic relationship between these two, these two um, pandemics, if you, if you like. 
I'm going to go to a question here from Desiree, or it's a comment perhaps. Um, I believe there's also a culture in our homes of protecting the family name from embarrassment and shame instead of protecting the child from the abuse or the woman in, in any case. Uh, so many skeletons in the family closet. Um, pride. I mean, family pride, male pride, um, community pride, uh, people not wanting to uh, to be embarrassed in front of other people, peer pressure in effect. Uh, how important do you think all of that is? And have you encountered anything like that in your work, Miranda? Yeah, I mean, we really have to look at what happens when a family does talk about it. So when um, somebody, a, a, a mom or a, you know, or a child speaks to a school and this gets out, and as you know, with sexual abuse, it has to be, it's, a man, it's mandated that it has to be reported. Well, the whole family is broken apart. And you literally, I mean, the mother has to move somewhere. The father has to either leave home or is 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 and is arrested. Um, children uh, perhaps then have to go to a new school. Um, it is it is a massive burden on a family when they make that decision um, to lose that whole family structure, the the friends, the school friends, the family support. The in fact, so even the the bigger family gets affected. So. Relatives, cousins, everybody talks about it. It's a huge problem in this country that actually there is this kind of thing where it becomes a gossipy, stigmatized, etc. thing. And I'm talking from the top right down, sort of the upper echelons of society down to the poorest communities where even neighbors start talking about this family that is broken apart, where sexual abuse has happened. Instead of how do we take in this? So this has happened in our family. We will take in this is uh, this is a woman who is our cousin, our relative. We will take her into our family. We will protect her or she will remain in the family home and the perpetrator will leave and he will now have to face the law. And we will contain this little family who now needs all our protection. They may need our financial support, emotional support, etc. But we don't really do this in society enough. And it was something that I wanted to pick up about the greater community supporting this. Because when communities and, and um, uh, whether it's uh, uh, faith-based communities or just, um, you know, friendships and sport or whatever it is, communities will say, we will look after this family who are going through this instead of abandoning them and throwing them to the walls. Because once they enter that process, it is highly traumatic and then the family inside almost wants to say it was almost better that we just stayed where we are because we had a roof over our head we had support nobody all the you know nobody in the community was talking about us our children weren't stigmatized they haven't had to leave school friends and begin a new life so it's it's hugely problematic Gareth when um yeah. when there's not support in that situation because people normally um will either keep quiet or they will go back to that environment rather than, than to venture out into the wilderness on their own largely, into a very hostile environment. Yeah. Uh, Monica, you you did write um, Pregnant in the Time of Ebola. That was your research paper. So so you can perhaps refer back to the question Alexandra asked about SGBV observed in past disease outbreaks, and not just that, but then obviously pregnancy and other ensuing social uh, situations some of them bad, some of them good. Uh, do you want to tell us about your research and what that revealed? Yeah, the research we did, actually, Pregnant During Ebola was a book and we contributed a chapter which was titled Gender-Based Violence Among Adolescent Girls and Young Women, and it was a neglected consequence of the West African Ebola outbreak. And what we found out is basically everything we have discussed here during response to Ebola emergency they forgot the young girls and the measures which were put in place, including quarantine, closure of schools, really put the young girls at risk. And as a result, they were exposed to sexual and gender-based violence. And economic hardships, which you have talked about, most of the girls became heads of households very early. Some of them had lost parents during the Ebola epidemic. And some of them, their parents were sick and they found themselves having to engage in transactional sex. So all the factors which we have discussed here played themselves during the epidemic, and that is why we are trying to advocate for parallel programs, simultaneous programs, as we 
respond to the epidemic or the pandemic, we also need to anticipate and appreciate that there's going to be a pandemic going on among young people. But just to add on also to what my colleagues have talked about around culture not uh, allowing people to talk about sexual and gender-based violence. To me, this is the biggest determinant of sexual and gender-based violence at the community level. The shame which is attached to it, the stigma, the silence, and how bodies of girls, and, and it's not only girls, I think uh, this topic is obviously around women and girls, but even young boys are affected to some extent. Mm. So working around that at the community level, to me, is where we are going to unlock this problem. Educating the communities, making this topic uh, an issue we can talk about, because sex is not something these communities talk about openly. And that is why when it happens, the way it happens, people don't want to talk about it because shame yeah. has been turned around the topic of sex. So interventions at the community level, including members of the community, whether they are parents, whether they are our brothers, our uncles, our grandfathers, is going to be very, very crucial as we move forward. And we don't have to wait for an, a pandemic. It is something which organizations need to continuously work on. And when a pandemic happens, we need to anticipate that there's going to be an outbreak and address it appropriately. Thank you for that. Uh, that's that's really, really interesting stuff and an interesting observation too. Now, I wanted to quick, quickly go back to something Miranda said earlier. There seem to be these two extremes in terms of what we actually end up hearing about in the news when it comes to community reactions to sexual and gender-based violence. The one extreme is that people completely ignore it and cover it up, which we've all referred to already, and families for their own pride or communities because they don't necessarily want to get involved in something embarrassing rather keep it quiet and brush it under the carpet. We hear about that uh, sometimes because afterwards the facts emerge and people get sent to jail, but it usually takes an enormous amount of, of uphill battle to make that happen. The other extreme is where communities constitute kangaroo courts and they take out their own justice on the perpetrators. And this is probably not something that anyone in, in this panel is in favor of, but it shows you the level of desperation in some places and with the situations that so many young women and, and, and girls have to face, that this is how communities react when they feel that not enough has been done up to that point. And we must try, obviously, to avert this wherever possible. But do you, any, any of you have comments on that, the, the extremes that this has taken to in some cases? Sure. No, I mean, I just think... Go ahead, Miranda. Great. Well, I just think, you know, Gareth, when we look at cases taking two and a half to four years to six years mm -hmm. to seven years, not unusual in this country. I think, um, I think certain communities do. They, they will either pay a visit to somebody's house. Um, there's also the lesser form of that where they will actually go themselves as a, a family of um, a girl who has been um, raped by uh, and normally they would know that this would be a family in this community and this boy was last seen with this girl and they will um, extract some kind of payment. That is what we have regularly. It is obviously something we are completely against because this boy needs to be held accountable for what he does and we need to have this going through a court of law. Yeah, but, but but this is it's an uphill I, battle. I'm so I'm so pleased you brought that up because because often when these horrible things happen, I mean we've seen it even with the widows of Marikana and people who have good reasons to be upset because there's been uh violence perpetrated against them and their relatives and there's been loss and there's been tragedy. But so often we fix these things in society with a band aid of money and we think we've dealt with the problem. Not not so. We haven't even begun to deal with it. This is maybe a way for the perpetrator to assuage their guilt or for their families to buy some some time or some reprieve. But actually, it's not dealing with the problem at all, is it? No, it's no, not. Well, yeah. I, I'm agreeing with Gareth that it's not, and that is why we need to really get the communities to understand what the effects of these atrocities have on girls or women or the survivors moving forward. 
the psychological effects, the physical effects, what happens to these people in the future. Because when you put those bandages, it's okay, the shame is gone, uh, the, whoever did it is covered, but the survivor themselves will live with these pains for a very, very long time. And this is a clear education where, where, where the communities need to really be made to understand the consequences of covering these atrocities, the consequences of not dealing with this. In terms of uh, the kangaroo court, which Gareth mentioned earlier, I personally feel that as much as we should strengthen the structural level uh, policies and all that goes with it, we need to strengthen those instruments at the community level also, right down to the village elder to be able to come in and, and zero tolerance, be able to come in and communicate whenever such a thing happens that it will not be tolerated. That has to begin at the smallest unit within a community. That is the only way we are going to succeed on this. How can we instruct girls to make themselves safer. I know they shouldn't have to bear this responsibility on their own, but the reality is that it's going to take a lot longer for us to resolve some of these other issues that we've spoken of. Um, is there any place for women to learn self-defense? Is there any place for <laughs> women? And I mean, this, these are obviously immediate solutions um, and we're trying to find solutions. So perhaps it is better that women are able to defend themselves. Maybe it is better that they know who they can go to for help. Perhaps we need to have more social workers in society, more organizations like Women and Men Against Child Abuse, Miranda. But these are these are things that I think everybody's trying to find at least building blocks to some kind of success against gender-based violence. Do you feel that these things will help? Do you think that we need a comprehensive approach, which will sometimes take more than one generation to achieve? And, and how do you see things moving forward based on all three of you and your experiences in the work that you do so far? Do you want to start there, Monica? Yes. First, first and foremost for me is providing young girls with education. Because when you talk about defense, some of these abuses begin very early. A 10-year-old, an 8-year-old or a 12-year-old, what kind of defense can they put up? But giving them information but also as we give the young girls information, making sure that there are structures at the community level. You know, if anything happens, because people who abuse women and girls, most often it's not very, it's not usually painful. They start slowly, they lure them, they talk to them, and it's, 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 it eventually becomes something which is not that violent. So just talking to girls around these topics, making these topics a normal thing. I have a 12-year-old, and I started talking to her when she was 10, calling things what they are, you know, sexual body parts, what they are supposed to be, and making sure that they're able to recognize if something unusual is happening and t showing them how to recognize those things you can report to your mom. And also uh, 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 making available you know, some of the programs at the community level, you know, social workers, which you mentioned, having some hotlines where people can call when something is going on, but also ensuring that when they call, when they report, something happens. Because most often times when they report, when they call, nothing happens. So making sure that all those programs are working, they are functional, and they can see results. So for me, starting education with these young girls as early as possible, making them know what's right and wrong, helping them to be able to understand where to report, what to talk about, and not being ashamed of talking about whatever it is that happens to them. As a first step, I think that will go a long way. Continue, Gareth. Sorry, there we are. Sophie, do you want to go ahead and, and then we'll go to Miranda last on this one. Sure. And then I do have one more question from, from Ailing, and then we, we've got something special for you to just leave it on a high note. I don't want everyone to leave this feeling depressed and hopeless. We, we've got people like you three who are doing wonderful work here. Do you want to go ahead with that question, Sophie? 
Yes, um, I'm, I'm glad you asked about self-defense because we're actually busy implementing a what's called empowerment self-defense. It's called the Empower Program, and it was devised by a, an American organization called No Means No Worldwide. And they've done trials and have found that it helps to reduce the incidence of violence by as much as 50%. Um, they've done trials in, in Kenya and Uganda. And so we're, we're starting to roll that out in South Africa. Um, and it is, yes, it is only one aspect of, of how we solve this problem. But the key here is about empowerment. And if, um, if people want to feel good, they only need to actually go onto the website and see some of these classes. Because what it is about is actually teaching girls not just physical self-defense, but actually verbal self-defense, verbal skills, and actually knowing that they're worth defending. Because a lot of girls don't feel that they're able to stand up um, to this and sometimes all it takes is for someone to just shout and say no um, you know in a very confident way and that will a uh, perpetrator will back will back down so it's not a, it won't solve everything but it certainly should be part of the of the mix of the of the mix we also run a community program called Stepping Stones, which again has been shown, evidence is there that it reduces um, violence in communities. And that's about educating community members um, and everyone about sexual and gender-based violence and also about um, you know, uh, gender disparities and gender inequality in communities. So it's very important to, for people to understand that. And then the, the final piece of the puzzle is, is care post violence. Um, and people don't realize the impact that this has on prevention. In other words, if someone gets proper treatment after they've been raped, if they go into a, a care center and get, and get the proper treatment, the reporting rates increase and the, then the conviction rates also can increase. So then there are proper consequences and that also can help to reduce the whole sort of kangaroo court, people taking things, people getting frustrated because nothing seems to happen. So I think the, the real message is we need to get women to understand, women and girls primarily to understand that if they are raped, if they are sexually assaulted, they must get the treatment. They must get treatment quickly. They must get the care as quickly as they can. And this actually does help to reduce violence in societies. So it's not just about um, helping you know, the, the victims of the crime, but also helping to get the perpetrators um, uh, responsible and to get justice for those for those people. Last word is yours, Miranda. Uh, you've got to turn on your mic as well. You just did what I did. Just a <laughs> <There> <laughs> Sorry, can you hear me? Okay. Sorry, I think it's, it's be something that everybody can do, um, everybody that's listening and just everybody in this world, and that is to be present in your child's life, to be present as much as you possibly can and to be able to hear everything and anything your child tells you and to believe what your child tells you. And for me, if you, if you don't have a child, but you have children in your greater family or in your community that you can see are vulnerable and perhaps unprotected, you being there as somebody that they could go and tell what has happened, or you who could notice that something has changed in this child will be the greatest for them to know that they have what has started off with a caring adult, an adult who is there for them. And I think another very important thing you also mentioned, um, uh, Monica, is that it, we need to be able, um, I think both both your guests have said this, and, and I think we all have reiterated in some way, is sex education, sex education for children, um, you had Elna on the other day. It's very important. We need to we need to teach children this. We need to teach children boundaries. We need to be aware of children who people who break those boundaries for children, people who come into our children's space who shouldn't be in that space and want to be there a lot. That's that's a worry. But people who are there as a care and support structure and to be present in your child's life as much as possible. And in your family, and in the children in your family's life, and and to women in your family, um, probably just that can can prevent a lot of of unnecessary um, trauma and violence. Well, thank you all very, very much. Monica, I appreciate you uh, getting up early in the morning in Boston to join us. Uh, Miranda, it's always a great pleasure to see you. And Sophie, a great pleasure to meet you today. Please keep doing the great work that you are all doing in your individual pursuits. And perhaps together we can 
we can stand against this thing once and for all and start to make a massive impact so that those women don't have to feel so alone and so that the people of South Africa can can finally find a, a cause that not only brings us together, but that we are all invested in the outcome of. Before we go, I'm going to quickly play you a song. Uh, it's by Loiso Gijana. He's uh, released a song about the killing of women in South Africa. Femicide. Um, it took the country by storm on social media. He found stardom as a contestant on the 11th season of the singing competition Idols South Africa, where he made the top eight. He released his debut single, Non Sikilelo, in December last year. The heart-wrenching song is called Madoda Sabilani, and it was released in June as dedication to all women who have tragically lost their lives due to domestic abuse and to violence in South Africa. At the time of the song's release, he said he initially wanted to compose a tribute song for a friend of his. He went on to say that he realized that there were so many victims of gender-based violence in South Africa that he decided to dedicate the song instead to all women who had lost their lives at the hands of men. He said on his social media page, all we need to do as men is put our pride aside and to be vulnerable. Let us help each other. There needs to be a total shift in the mindset of men. I think that's something we can all agree with. I'm going to play you the song. And thank you all for being a part of this webinar today. Thank you for your attendance. If you'd like to have any of the material here, um, perhaps you'd like to re, uh, re-listen, re-watch some of the expertise offered by Monica, by Sophie, and by Miranda, you can do so by going to cliffcentral.com. We will have it all there for you, as well as the video content, which we encourage you to spread and share among all your friends and family, the people you care about, and to women who you know are going through a very tough time, uh, not just because of COVID, but because of what was going on before COVID and what is likely to be going on after. Um, so thank you all very, very much. I'm going to play you Loisa's song now. And thank you very much for being a part of today's extraordinarily interesting webinar.
Thank you all so very much for being part of this. Just one quick comment because we've got uh, all the attendees making some some points of view here that I just want to end off with. Grace saying it's definitely a good idea to start where we are in our circles. Cindy saying goosebumps. The song is beautiful and clearly heartfelt. Tracy saying thank you for an amazing series and uh, thank you to Absa for being part of that too. These are not easy conversations to have and a lot of corporates would prefer to shy away from them. So it is to their great credit that they've been involved from the get-go. And this is the fourth in the series, uh, the final episode. You can always catch up on the other episodes if you missed them by going to cliffcentral.com. And uh, Ailing saying, thank you, Gareth and Absa, for this. Such important conversations which we need to continue to take forward. I couldn't agree more. Thank you from the Global Fund. Well, thank you very much, too. And uh, we won't stop here. I think all of us have our responsibility to keep this conversation going and you can keep an eye on what we'll be doing at Cliff Central to find out more. But in the meantime, big thank you to everyone. Monica, thanks for waking up and, and doing this with us in Boston. Sophie, Miranda, and most especially to you for being an attendee today. Thank you, thank you. Cliffcentral.com.